and What's Up World. I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. Please follow us on Instagram at hyphen media and at youpeople.podcast. Now, I think we're going to have an unbelievably fun and engaging conversation today. Our guest is Mei Hong, a Korean-American artist, actress, and sometimes sad clown. Mei most recently rapped playing Margot Park on the new Netflix limited series, Tales of the City. How are you today, Mei? Good. I like how intensely you're enunciating your words. I have been listening to a number of podcasts, and the best thing you can possibly do is enunciate. Yes. I'm actually often afraid that I'll be criticized for vocal fry. What's vocal fry? Like vocal fry. Oh, I don't think I like that. Yeah. Don't vocal fry. I know. It's, you know, very common. You have to come in hot. Yeah. So I have a question before we kick things off. Okay. Is it true that your real name is Mayonnaise? Yes. Your parents named you Mayonnaise Hong? No, but you say mayonnaise, which I think, you know, is wrong. How, how, do, you say, how do you say it? Mayonnaise? Mayonnaise. Wow, mayonnaise. really twisted. I don't know where you grew up. I grew up in Minnesota. Okay, all right. And I have a Minnesotan accent that sometimes comes out when I say words like pillow, but it's pillow. Oh, okay. Milk. Yeah. Roof. Yeah. Mayonnaise. Yeah, I, I've heard... Just bagel, which is very weird to me for bagel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bagel. That's Midwestern, I guess. Is it also Midwestern that when my dad wrote my name on a birth certificate, he wrote it K R E M? <laughs> and so for the first about 12 years of my life, mm-hmm. teachers would be like, Is Krem there? And I would be like, It's Kareem. Why don't you guys understand? Like, oh, it must be because. I'm Egyptian, that they've never heard the name Kareem before. Yeah. Only to realize once I could spell that it was literally just spelt incorrectly. On your birth certificate. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like legally creme. Is it still that way? No, I changed it. Oh, okay. But I, in remembrance of creme, I did get it tattooed <laughs> on my thigh. Oh, that's good. So I have my name incorrectly. Yeah, I also have a good, should I, yeah. I just passed my naturalization test, my interview, and, you know, only took 24 years, no big deal. And my, so obviously, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but mayonnaise is not my real name. Oh. And May is also not, or was not my legal name at all. It was my Korean name, which is Yu Gyeong. And when I got, when I passed the interview, you know, when you just signed the certificate, it's, you're able to change your name on the spot. So I made my first name May, and my middle name Yu Gyeong, and my last name Hong. And it was very emotional for me. It was like I was fully saying, America takes priority, you know? And, yeah. like it, and also just saying I'm giving up my South Korean citizenship. And my swearing-in ceremony is August... Ninth. That's really amazing. Excited. Yeah. That's really amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a great segue to talking about your parents yeah. who moved here 
from South Korea to yeah. the United States, I think 25, 26 years ago. In 1995. In 1995, they moved here from South Korea. Yeah, I convinced them to actually, when they were like incorporating, I convinced them to make their business name January 1995. Oh. Inc. Because that's the day. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. That's a great, I love thinking of incorporation names, like Essential Consultants LLC. Yeah. Things that are meaningless. Yeah. But this is obviously extremely meaningful. Yeah. And what when you say incorporate, do they have a business? They have a dry cleaners. Oh, that's cool. Maybe and it's not incorporated. I don't know the actual. It's not an LLC though. Right. And they're in New York City. They so <laughs> the cleaners is actually in Monzi, New York, but they moved to Jersey like 3 years ago from Flushing. Cool. And the whole town is super Hasidic and there's a bus if I'm sure you've noticed Monzi Trails in South Williamsburg. There's one that goes straight from South Williamsburg to Monzi. And I live in South Williamsburg, so my dad actually told me to take the bus and visit them once. And I was waiting. I was the only non-Hasidic person, obviously, waiting. And the bus rolled in, and it's just curtain all the way down. Did you take it? No. <laughs> no, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And apparently it's it's not just like the gender separation it's because they breastfeed oh so no titties on the bus but you weren't breastfeeding no no i've never been pregnant cool so your parents yeah tell me about them um tell me about your dad i'm not speaking to him right now (laughs) 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 which is it happens it happens when you know i think it is part of the immigrant experience we just get into like blowout fights and then it's so dramatic because it's, or I don't know if this is like, obviously not the dynamic in every family, but wow, really just going, diving right into that. I think my mom like tried not to have fights with my dad. And so whenever there is a fight, he thinks it's like the end of the world instead of it being a conversation that could be productive. So he'll be like, all right, whatever. Or maybe I'll talk to you in a year or two. <laughs> it's like, oh. excuse and I've, I've, we've had like six month breaks where we just don't talk and then just kind of, I don't know, some out of some like family obligation, just have to like get back together. And and when you get back together, is it like nothing ever changed or do, do you guys, do you it's have like, a reckoning? It's like a step in the right direction, but there isn't like a conversation. There hasn't been a conversation. Really need one this time. It was like the first time I yelled at him. Ooh. Yeah. And is that once you... Got your citizenship. Oh, no. Did it change no, no, the no. dynamic? I know. It's interesting. Maybe I was thinking about that. And I don't know. It's, and you were like, it's I'm all... my own person. <laughs> I've been like inching forward to, I don't know. It's, yeah, the language barrier is hard because it's always my responsibility to be better at Korean. And it's not their responsibility to be better at English right. for us to have a closer relationship. So... I don't know. So then I'm like, I should be spending time getting better at it. I'm pretty good. It's my first language. You know, we moved here when I was six. And I, yeah, it's just that, yeah, it's always my responsibility. Right. And that is a burden. And then they wish they could be better, but they don't have the time because they both still work labor jobs. Right. So I'm not going to, you know, make them do it. A lot of guilt. Right. In general. That's interesting that you say that. The, I was thinking about, in the context of this podcast, 
what the kind of thread throughout these stories is, like in terms of being a son or daughter of immigrants or an immigrant altogether, is guilt. I think that guilt is like the defining factor of being an immigrant. Like when I think about, you know, the sacrifices that my parents made to come to America, I'm just like born into guilt. Yes. Whereas I think a lot of people who are not immigrants or children of immigrants are not born into that guilt. And I think it plays a really, really kind of defining role in who we become as adults. Yeah. So that's really interesting that you say that. So your childhood then, what you remember of it in South Korea, was there a whiplash when you moved to New York City or did you find it pretty, like what was your childhood like? I apparently, so (laughs) I feel like I still don't know the full, full story, but there were some financial issues, there were blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, of course, growing up, it's like we came here for a better life and a better education for you whatever but I mean there are other things that were going on that they haven't disclosed to me fully I mean I I know a bit about it but yeah when I apparently was like pretty excited (laughs) but we had we were living with my mom's mom like with my grandmother and we didn't tell her that we were leaving wow and they're like you can only pick one doll you can't take all of them and I was like oh no I have to pick my favorite guy and we just, we left. We like picked up and left. And of and course, in that time you had no idea what yeah, leaving meant. I was like, yeah. I mean, I was fine with it, you know? And I was just like a good sport. But yeah, getting here, we, yeah, we got to LAX. <laughs> Lived in Vegas for like three weeks because my dad had a friend who worked at the MGM Grand, which Amazing. was really weird. But we lived in this motel. I think I made my first like white friend that I couldn't communicate with at all, but we like rolled in the grass together and that was fun. In Vegas. It, yeah, and it was like Shark Week the whole time that I was there. So I was only <laughs> watching shark television for three weeks, which is really weird. <laughs> and then we moved to New York and I've I've been here since. But I definitely had... I mean, I also didn't understand why no one could say my name. Because the night before the first day of first grade, which they had to fight to get me into, they wanted to place me in kindergarten, but they were like, no, 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 we're going to get her into first grade. Because they're Asian parents. Yeah, exactly. Because it was like midway through the year and they were like, we got to just, got to push her, get her in there, which I'm glad they did. But it was also, so no one could pronounce my name. But... Yeah, the night before the first day of first grade, my mom was like, you need an American name. And I was like, "Mm, why? She's like, just, you know. And she was looking through her English-Korean dictionary from like the 50s, like a really old copy. And she found May and was like, queen of the months, um, like a woman's name. And then fifth month of the year. And she's like, wow, this is so beautiful. I was like, I don't understand what's wrong with my name. What's wrong with you, Gyeong, you know? And then I went to school, and I was enrolled as that. I mean, you know, and no one could pronounce it. It was like, God fucking damn it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think by day two, they told my first Korean friend, Sarah Lee, shout out to Sarah Lee, wherever she is. I asked her to tell my teacher that my name was May, and I could, like, see the relief just wash over my teacher, even at that age, just knowing, like, oh, I my existence is like an inconvenience, you know? And so, yeah, even like trying to say my name is like 
troublesome <laughs> or like and um, you and you had to contract Sarah Lee exactly because you literally could not speak English she still hasn't sent me an invoice <laughs> so you you had to find the only other Korean yeah she was my first best friend because she could speak the same language as you I presume yeah. that that's the reason yeah and number one it is nice that there was another Korean person yes at the school yeah number two it's nice that she would do that favor for you yeah. and you would find such relief but also have this first realization that you're going to have to make concessions yes totally. uh, to fit in yeah and then sarah lee was you know letting me copy off of her at first you know that's like how i was learning wow. and then one day she finally did like the the hand barricade you know where you like cover your paper and it's like stop copying me and I just, I freaked out. I like didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm fucked. I, <laughs> I don't know how to, I mean, I knew the alphabet. I knew, and like, I remember my dad like hovering over me, making me do like the homework and sort of being like, do it right. Like I remember <laughs> it being like a traumatic experience. But also then the more time I spent, I started getting these chronic stomach aches. And they were really intense. And my parents took me to like every doctor. And they're like, there's literally nothing wrong with her. And in hindsight, they were all just stress related. You know, like I, I think the first time when Sarah Lee wouldn't let me coffee, that was when my mom had to come and pick me up because I was crying. I think it was like sort of my first like panic attack. Wow. But then I, you know, I guess ESL, it's really weird because I don't remember anything about it. I know I went to ESL, like they, I got pulled out of class for a year. And then by the second grade, every single parent teacher conference was like, May talks too much in class. Like, what is wrong with her? She's being disruptive. That is so weird. I have a similar experience yeah. where I also took ESL. I, I came to the US only speaking Arabic. Yeah. And do you have no memory? Of I the mean, person? I have, I have no memory. Yeah, I have no memory of the person. No, I don't even know. I don't, like, oh, you, you have could, no memory of doing it at all. No, you could tell me that I did ESL and I'd be like, no, I didn't. But I know that I did because I speak English and I've confirmed the fact with my mother who did say that I took ESL, but I literally, do, I don't know the person. I don't know what grade. It just seems like one day I woke up and I was like watching TRL and like it all clicked and made sense. And I was like, oh, I love Tool. Like that's yeah. a great band. Or like secretly knowing all the lyrics to the Backstreet Boys, but not actually disclosing that information because one time I was wearing Power Rangers underpants and I got made fun of. And I started understanding the rules of engagement because mm -hmm. Power Rangers were cool. And then one day, this kid named Bill was like, you're a loser. You're wearing Power Rangers underwear. And I was like, no. Power Rangers are dope. And he's like, no, Power Rangers are for kids. And I was like, okay. So I remember going home and like telling my mom, I'm like, I can't wear these underwear. And did you get mad at her though? No, I didn't get mad. What I did get mad about was that I wanted a bowl cut really badly. Yeah. But I have, for those listening, I have an afro. It's impossible for me to have a bowl cut. Yeah. And I just couldn't understand. Why not? Why I couldn't have a bowl cut when everyone else had a bowl cut. And I grew up in this cul-de-sac and pretty much everyone had a bowl cut <laughs> except for me. Yeah. And so I just buzzed it. Cool. I was just like, I'll take the buzz. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, because I didn't like the hair. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting that these large pieces of our past disappear. And I've had this little journey where I'm like trying to get the story straight 
like there's a lot of things I don't know about myself and about my family. And yeah. even though people are alive, I'm like, hey, what happened with this? My mom kind of just like doesn't answer my questions anymore. I, know. I yeah. don't know why. Do your know. mom do that? Yeah, it's- they, I mean, I, I had to ask my mom and my cousin about how my grandfather died. Like I've asked, I had asked them like five times. I mean, I can't ask I can't keep asking if, and then you know I asked my cousin first and she was like I think that's that's your dad's story to tell you and then I was like okay <laughs> and then I asked my mom and she just started crying and was like I think your dad should tell you it's like what the fuck it was it's like so much secrecy and yeah it's wild so I still don't know I mean I I know it was suicide. Oh, okay. Or, or some, yeah. He froze to death. That's like after drinking himself wow. to like oblivion. But, but also, I mean, it's also weird, and I don't know if this is super disrespectful for me to like be saying this. Not that my parents will listen to it, but you know, because I didn't have he he passed away before I was born. Oh, okay. So I have no. My dad was eighteen, and yeah, there are just so many traumas that I know that that is why my dad and also my mom has, I mean, they've treated me with that, but they haven't given me the opportunity to feel that empathy for them because they don't tell me the stories. Right. And I feel like if they had, I mean, I'm learning more and more as time passes and I visited my grandmother in November. In Korea. In Korea. Yeah. And that was only my second time back. Wow. And you know, I even asked her, I was like, so what happened, you know, what happened to grandpa? And she's like, oh, he just, he died a natural death of old age. And I was like, what are you talking? They just fully lied to my face, you know, like just, and actually I'm really excited to see the farewell. The Mm. film. Yeah. Yeah. That looks really good. Yeah. It looks really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's that kind of sort of, we, we keep things from each other as like, you know, to protect each other from things. But I, I don't know, maybe it's just because we're so American. We're just like, just tell just that sharing is what I consider to be closeness. Right. I mean, it feels, at least I, I feel incomplete at times. Yes. Because I don't know the whole story. Yeah. And then I speak to someone who is one of my friends who is like a, like a, a nor, let's just say a normal white person or a normal American person. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, my grandfather came here from Poland right. in, in 1872. And then he met his wife and they did this. And then we built this family. And then these two families merged. And then this person died a horrible death. And then this person got really rich. And they are totally open yeah. with each other and yeah. totally proud of whatever kind of comes their way. Totally. And I think that there's a lot of stigma, shame, um, shame stigma, pride, yeah. you know, there's a lot of posturing to then like the nationalism, like sprinkle, you know, like on all of that. Well, we're rep- representatives of our countries, you know, yes. which is a which is a big big deal. So you made your way through elementary and grade school, you figure out the English situation, <laughs> you stopped leeching off of Sarah Lee. Yes. You found a new person, I maybe. Who well, was, no, who was no, number no. two. No, then I had my first like bully friend that's like, you can't be friends with her. Oh. Pit me against Sarah Lee, actually. Oh, not, <laughs> so not shout out to bully. Uh, or it's shout fine. out bully. Hi, hello, Joyce Kim. Damn, you know, receipts, maybe. receipts on you people. She's friends. <laughs> 
Wow. Are you friends with her on Facebook? Oh my God, maybe. I don't know. I hope she doesn't listen to this. It's she's fine. probably not a bully anymore. She's probably no, she's like super well-adjusted yeah, and nice person. Yeah, I think so. She probably like does Pilates and has a really nice life. Yeah. So Joyce was kind of your second beacon maybe. And you made it through, was high school easier or was it harder? Did you start coming into, I, we read this quote in our research about kind of your dad when he freaked out the first time he saw you wearing black nail polish oh, when you were 13. Yeah. Uh, so the quote is, my dad freaked out the first time he saw me wearing black nail polish when I was 13. I think that was just his fear that I was becoming a freak. Surprise, too late. I'm here wearing a full clown face on the regular. So first, <laughs> I want to talk about that phase of black nail polish. Yes. And then we should talk about the clown thing. I'm into clowns. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just found out that my partner is not into clowns after many years of just doing this clown face. And <laughs> How'd you he, find out? He was like, I don't, I don't like it. And he's I was like, why didn't you tell me? And he's he's like, not I don't for know. clown culture. Yeah, he's just, he's not really into it and was afraid of them growing up. So I didn't know I was triggering him <laughs> so often. So he's been living with a person who yes. puts on clown face and he hasn't said anything about it. But Probably because he's, he's just too scared. Oh. Maybe, I don't know. Does he show any signs of fear? No, he would just look at me. I mean, you know, Halloween, he'd look at me and be like, ah, <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> and, and so dad was also freaked out by the black nail polish, yeah. equally freaked out. Uh, I mean, I think junior high school was fine, and then, and but you know, in Queens, it's like, I don't know, for some reason, my average was fine in the seventh grade, but for whatever reason, in the eighth grade, I got put into like the bad kid class, and they were cool, and I, I think that was my first like real feeling of like bullying, but thankfully, you can opt to have like junior high school seventh and eighth grade and then go into high school freshman year or stay another year but so then I went to I like auditioned or you know had a portfolio which is hilarious to think of like a 12 year old making a you know a body of work <laughs> I think it's cool it is cool yeah and then we had to like go and do this thing where we draw like on the spot and we submit it but it was for LaGuardia which is an art and performing arts high school right by Lincoln Center. And I went and that was like my true saving grace, but also what, you know, probably alienated me or it's when like my parents started feeling our separation the most, I think. And also because I was commuting into the city every day from Queens. And so the exposure to the city and my best friend, still best friend for life, her dad owns like a vintage clothing store and it's like that's so fucking cool this is crazy so we'd be like at st mark's all the time you know yeah. as like little like punk punk high school and, and so was your parents supportive of art school like uh, of, of laguardia like that sounds pretty cool yeah for them you know my my parents just shoved me into public school because it was cheap or that free. was pub it's public school yeah yeah. Okay. So that's great. Yeah. And there was no pressure to pursue a career in the sciences or engineering or lawyer. Yeah. So that's like what's weird about them is that they were. So my dad was really into theater when he was in his early 20s. So that's his like, you know, forgotten passion, I guess. And so he just, I think he knew what it felt like to be passionate about something. And so he just, you know, sort of in this way of I want you to live the life that I can't live and I want 
you know, don't chase money and do what makes you happy and then money will just come, which is a very liberal and not common thing for an Asian parent to say and do. And it's unbelievably good advice. Yeah. That I've only recently started deploying right. for myself. Yeah. And it's wild that they, you know, had that philosophy. But I feel like as much as they wanted to do that, there's still this conservatism and a traditional, you know, Korean mindset where it's like they want me to do it, but they it felt like, you know, those dog collars or the leashes where it's like a it extends, you can run, then you like hit the button and it like chokes them and you like they fly back because you like stop it from extending. That's what it always felt like to me, where it was like run free, like go ahead, like be an artist and do whatever makes you happy, but don't wear black nail polish. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, what is that? Or why are you wearing these clothes? Or, you know, and like, I remember specifically having an argument with my dad where it was like in the car and we were driving around flushing. I don't even remember how it started, but he was taught, he was criticizing me about my clothes and I was like, you know, because everyone that stayed in Queens was like AZN, you know, like they would be like throwing like N-word around at each other and then like quiet when a black guy walks by. Just like, yeah, whatever, AZN like kids. AZN is like, like, uh, like hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. Asians. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. And you were in the city. You were going to the city. Yeah, and I was going and to the city. And you were thrift shopping, and you were not very hip-hop. Right, and then I was, I would just, like, you know, at the time, like, being, you know, as snobby as a high school kid could be about that. And I just remember fighting, like, what do you want me to wear, a North Face jacket? And he's like, what's wrong with North Face? <laughs> That's an amazing argument. It was so stupid, yeah. And so you were going into the city every day, going to art school, feeling presumably at home in art school and and amongst your peers, and then going back to your real home in Queens, which started probably to feel a little more foreign as you were coming into yourself. Right. That's like, I think, a very common, typical thing. For me, it happened in college when I was just like, my father and I used to make kind of everything was... We had like a business relationship, even though I was his son. He was like, treated me like a man since I was like 11. That's cool. Yeah, it was like, it was like everything was negotiated. So it was like, if you want to go out with your friends on Saturday night, you must mow the lawn. And I'm like, fair, I'll mow the lawn, but I want to go out Saturday and Tuesday. Wow. And it was like always negotiating like that. And then so we eventually negotiated to, if I got into college and went to college, that I could do whatever I wanted and that okay. there would be no more negotiations. Like I could just have, like for him, that was like he had done his job in raising me and that I was free to do as I please. So when I turned 18 and went to college, I pretty much just didn't come back ever. Yeah. Like I would come home on Sunday from like 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. and that was it. Yeah. And, and I did everything on my own. So what happened? for you after high school when you decided to go to continue your art education? Yeah, I mean, I got into a couple schools and I remember being like, oh, well, they gave me money and maybe I should go there. And then there was this whole legal situation too because 
basically when we came here, we came here on a tourist visa and we let it expire. And so when we applied to get our green cards, it was processing. And then the sponsor, my parents' sponsor, who was their employer at the time, changed their business name midway through, which then just like completely fucked everything up. And so it got denied, reapplied. It was after 9-11. Just got harder. That's why it took so long. And I got my green card in 2013. Wow. All this to say that I was not eligible for any financial aid, any scholarships, because I was just in this weird limbo legal status where it was like, my I'm legally allowed to be here, but I can't leave the country. But I'm still considered an international student. So I couldn't apply for like FAFSA or you know whatever. Right. And then when I applied to go... I eventually, the, yeah, these other schools did offer me money, but my parents just being like, you have to go to the best school. Like, I don't care what. Like, you got into RISD, go to RISD. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. And then RISD called me, or they sent me a letter being like, we need your TOEFL score, which is the English as a second language test. And <laughs> I called the admissions office and I was like, hey, this is me and I'm talking to you right now. And I'm not going to take the test. And I'm not going to send you the score. Wow. And they were like, all right. Sounds legit. They just accepted it. They accepted it. That's great. But it's crazy that technically I was considered an international student. So it's like forever following me that like, okay, oh, you know, you're neither here nor there. Right. And yeah, I've actually been thinking a lot about like this term because my two best friends are biracial and... I hadn't really like thought about it that much, but they were like, I don't think it's a coincidence and that we all connect so much about it. And it's this, she uses term biculturalism, which is like very interesting to me because I, yeah, I definitely feel that way where it's, you know, I'm, I think being in New York and in like a diverse school always where everyone was except, I mean, literally in like elementary school and junior high school, it was everyone saying, go back to your own country, which is hilarious because everyone's just throwing it at each other. It's like, you go back to your own country. Like you go back to your own country. And it's like, nobody's from here. Wait, that is so (laughs) funny. I just imagined a bunch of little kids that are all like different shades and and just literally insulting each other like that. Yeah. It actually becomes kind of funny. Yeah. It's hilarious. And were they saying it ironically? Like, no, did they was, know? No. I, oh, they were I, literally I that, being mean. I think that they thought, I mean, it always felt like the meanest thing you could say. Right. I mean, like, it is. Yeah, it is. It is a really mean thing to say. It is very mean. But you feel like there's a kind of collective ideology in multi or biculturalism. <laughs> Multiculturalism. Multicul- yeah, biculturalism. Yeah, yeah. Multipotentialite. I heard this term the other day. Wow. But that one is less to do with your ethnicity or where you grew up and more to do with what you aspire to do for a living. Hmm. There are people who are, you know, I'm a musician. I'm an actor. I'm a doctor. I'm yeah. a lawyer. Yeah. And then there are people that are like, I'm actually all these things. Yeah. And there's like the doctor who has a web series and as a comedian and the term that this woman coined, I saw it on a TED talk, was a multipotentialite. Hmm. And I kind of really related with that. Yeah. And I was like, I could be, I am a multipotentialite. For like, sure. I can't just be a thing. Yeah. I'm like a bunch of things jammed together. Yeah. And some of those things don't make any sense. And I think having, I had a question for you. Did you ever feel like you maybe over 
indexed on your Americanism and had to kind of snap back and realize, oh, wait, like, I'm not just an American or I'm not just Korean. Like, Mm. for me, I think I definitely have had moments where I've gone super American. Right. Like, and a lot of it has to do with physical distance. Like, I didn't go back to Egypt for a good eight years once. And at that point, I was, you could have just called me Mike. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I was just like full on Mike, you know? I was just like, I had the bull cut. Yeah. Not physically, but metaphysically, metaphorically, I had the bull cut. Yeah, yeah. And it took going back to Cairo to be like, oh shit, like I am so, like all these people look like me. Yeah, (laughs) I... And I'm not a fish out of, I'm like, I feel really normal, even yeah. though like I'm, even though I'm still. But don't you feel othered in Egypt too? Totally, I'm, so I'm still much? like yeah, totally. Like my, I can't even. I mean, I feel like when I'm walking around, I'm care. I like I have a sign that says like, I grew up in America. Yeah, um, exactly. And and it's it it's like I try to blend in, but people always know. they know. But I feel like there's a warmth there, an acceptance. It's like your long lost sibling. And when I go back, I always am embraced. Like when I, even when I step into the airport, like the guys at the airport place are, they say, welcome back. And I always find that that's very, a warm welcome to a place that I haven't been for so long, you know? And it has this effect where I just feel like I'm just another one of the people living there, even though I'm obviously not. So there's this otherness, definitely. And, And that's like, the thing is like, you feel other in both places. Yeah. I think I prefer the othering here, weirdly. Elaborate. It just feels weird to be part of the majority, first of all. That's like, I'm like, whoa. You know, that's right. like always a trip where you're like, everyone's Korean. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously, but then they just, I mean, I maybe it's because Korea is so homogenous. Like, in, I mean, the culture where... Everyone feel there's a lot of group at sheeple <laughs> or like, you know, everyone has sort of like the same makeup on. And if you're not wearing whatever's popular on your face, like makeup wise, it's they just know right away. And it's not that I feel hostility or anything. It's just I think I'm, I feel more stared at there also because of my height where I'm like, oh, I'm much taller than a lot of people here. Whereas here, it's like, I don't know, at least because I don't know how to curse in Korean. Like, I know how to, but it's very awkward to me because it's not like my language like capped at like me coming here. I mean, I was very good at Korean for my age at the time, but, you know, it's not like I was learning how to curse by six years old. So... At least here, if someone's like, you know, being shitty to me, I can be like, oh, go fuck yourself. You know, like I can't do that in Korean. Right. And so, yeah, I feel, I'm not, I feel not whole there. So I think, I don't know. I think the scary thing that I've been feeling lately is that the closer I feel to being myself, the further I feel from my parents, which is really, really tragic. And I wish I could find some way of, I don't know, yeah, reconciling that. And and I think usually the reason why the fights happen is because I want to be close to them. But right. it feels impossible at times. And 
we have the ability to have this surface relationship where, I mean, my parents would still like, you know, come over and bring food and then we just chat for a while and then they leave and that's fine. But it's weird to have that kind of like familiarity without knowing all of the backstory into what made them. So there's still a separation. And then it's also like, I can't use, you know, the few times that we see each other. I mean, they're not far, but still we can't spend those hours just like, so what happened when you were, you know, like I can't challenge them every time. It's exhausting. And then it also feels like I'm forcing them to do this emotional labor of like rehashing their past when they're just like, it's fucking, it's our one day off. Can we just chill? And then I feel bad about, you know, asking so many questions like interrogation yeah i don't even know how we got here but yeah yeah no it's yeah. it's it's cool that we did you know i just had i've recently started to like really treat my mom as my friend that's so cool it's become really interesting like i used to hide like that's the other thing is like i just hid everything for so long I you know, know i hid yeah i smoked cigarettes for a while hid that yeah. and i think most kids do yeah but also growing up in a muslim household and I, I don't drink right now, but I used to drink and I had to hide that. And yeah. even when I was like 28, you know, yeah. like 30, yeah. <laughs> I would just, I yeah. would just be like, I don't drink mom. <laughs> and you know, that's the other thing is that I would have to pretend like I'm not this, you. Yeah. And so like, I wouldn't want to take a trip with my mom when I just like couldn't enjoy a beer, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and so I remember one day I just did it. I think it was like Thanksgiving. I was just like, I'm just going to have a beer. Like, I'm just going to open it and see what happens. And my mom was really cool about it mm-hmm. during the dinner. Uh-huh. But then I got this heartbreaking text message what? that was like, Kareem, I love you so much. Please don't drink in front of me. It makes me feel like a failure. Oh, my God. And I was like, damn, I am feeling horrible. And at that point, I kind of decided that there are concessions and that out of respect for her feelings that I wouldn't drink around her, you know, and then naturally I just stopped drinking anyways. But this idea of like having to negotiate, it's always a negotiation. I feel because you can't be fully yourself and you can't be fully what they want you to be. So you have to like be a version that is palatable palatable it's a little bit watered down yeah well yeah so something that i've been thinking about is that i don't know like with my parents where it's like maybe we love each other but don't like each other (laughs) (laughs) like i feel like my dad just doesn't like like me like like the person i am like he loves me right he loves me as his daughter but he doesn't like me he doesn't want to chill he he just and I feel like my mom's more like, oh, okay, mm-hmm, but like not into it, you know? And like even like what you're saying about drinking and hiding that you drink, it's like once I started getting tattoos, I would still, even if they knew about it, like they eventually knew about it. I, it's like, why are you wearing long sleeves in the summer? And I still try to when I know I'm seeing them, I still try to like not wear anything that's like too bare armed so that they don't have to be reminded of it, you know? And like (laughs) my dad finally Googled me for the first time when I like started modeling (laughs) and that's how he found out. 
And he called me and he was like, so what's up with all the scribbles on your arms? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, that's real. And I was like, yeah, that's real. That sounds like a very, that, that way that you just said it sounds like exactly like that's real. Yeah. Like it's not costume <laughs> tattoos. Like that's that's real. Yeah. Like, yes, dad. Like must confirm. And yeah. did he was he just like fuck it? Yeah. He's he w- just like whatever. Yeah. I mean, body. what's he gonna do? But yeah, it it did. I think that was a surprising moment where he was like, ah, okay. But also, what's weird is I I think it's because he knew that I was getting work as a result of my tattoos too. Right. Because of like modeling stuff where they were like, oh, into it, which is like corny to think about, you know, being desirable for that reason. But yeah. Right. And did you, so you, in 2011, you went on an epic adventure road trip. Speaking of hiding, my dad doesn't even know that I went on like a seven week road trip. So your dad cannot, we can protect this podcast at all costs. No, I hope he listens to it. I mean, he... Shout out, May's dad. Shout out to my dad. (laughs) So tell me about the road trip. Well, I mean, it was like, quote unquote, a job, I guess. Ryan McGinley asked me to go on a road trip, which he was doing every summer. I I don't know if he's still doing them every summer, but yeah, we, we made our way through the States, getting naked, you know, everywhere and jumping in like bushes and trees and water and fireworks and all this stuff, but it's like so non-sexual. I mean, like the nudity is not, you know, sometimes I'd stand and I wouldn't even mean to if I like lean too much on one hip, he'd be like, ah, no, that's like too, I don't know, feminine or like just like the contrapposto is like too, it's like not childlike enough. And like it's, it is so much about like this innocence and just running around and yeah, it was like a seven week long mushroom trip, you know, but there were no drugs or drinking. Like it was really like straight to business. Like yeah. we were just doing that, but it was so amazing. I think it was the first time that I really came into my body and felt like comfortable being exposed like that and knowing that it was safe and not feeling that kind of shame or yeah, I don't know. It was, it was really, really cool. And, and that I, was that in college or Post-college. Right after college. And I was like ready to quit my photo assisting job for that. I was like, Craig, my boss's name, Craig, I will find you a replacement for when I'm gone. But like, I totally understand if you need to fire me for this, but I have to go. And he was like, okay. And I like found someone else. And how did the, I guess, invite process work? Were you cast or did he just kind of yeah. see you and was like, this is perfect i saw him at a part i was like dancing at a party and he asked me to come in for like a studio portrait and then after that he asked me to go on the trip that's epic yeah it was awesome we kind of glossed over your college days but you studied printmaking yes at RISD. yeah and that's where you started painting and like doing the art yeah doing the art seriously and it was like the best time ever i mean i think i'm that is it's such a fortunate most people hate high school and I loved it you know because that's where I met all like all the like-minded people I'm still friends with high school friends and they're not just like married with kids they're just like a, just like us <laughs> and <laughs> and college was much of the same and I actually was I thought that when I went in, I was like oh yeah industrial design like that's what I'm gonna do or like 
I don't know, something... It's like when Korean parents... First of all, RISD is 25% Korean, not 25% Asian. Like, I think it's... Because it's, like, the Harvard of art schools. And, wow. like, Koreans... Like, rich Korean kids that went to boarding school, like, their parents realize, like, you can make money being a designer. So let's just push them if they're at all creative. But none of them were in the fine arts majors, you know? <laughs> so, like... It's either industrial design or graphic design or interior design or interior architecture or architecture. And I thought I was going to do that. Then I was like, I'm going to do furniture. And I just, I don't know. It felt wrong. I went into like film and video for like a little bit for a semester and it felt really wrong. <laughs> and I just went into printmaking and it was, it's the best. I love it. It was the best and I got really serious about making work and that dialogue is so valuable and you know then you graduate you're like oh yeah <laughs> no one cares <laughs> right like you know but I'm finally making work again it's been like two or three years now that I've been making work consistently and I couldn't do it I couldn't do it I graduated in 2010 yeah didn't start making work until like 2017 and why do you think that is? because I was just too depressed I was so, I mean, I think I was just figuring it out. I mean, I didn't know what making work meant. It felt like idiotic. <laughs> I mean, I still have to fight those feelings, you know, where it's like, what am I doing? But usually the answer is like, well, what, are, what else are you going to do? <laughs> right. Like, is there anything more productive that you could be doing? You know, like it's, and it brings me joy. So that's kind of how I feel about anything. <laughs> when, when, when I'm like, why am I doing this? Yeah. And then it's like going to be so hard to do this. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, everything's going to be hard. Like, yeah, it's better than scrolling through Instagram. Yeah. Oh, I, I actually, what's your relationship? My, my relationship with Instagram is that I'm currently logged out. Wow. Just totally logged out. No password in. I can't. I could log back in, but I'd have to go retrieve my password, which I don't know off the top of my head. Oh, you don't? So yeah. you don't have, I thought you, okay, but so the app is deleted off your phone. No, no, well. the app is in my phone. Okay, that's a weird move. <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a more interesting move. I find that if I delete the app, yeah. I can just re-download it. Sure. But if I do one of those random passwords, it's like X752, mm -hmm. and then I log out, I literally have to like go to my password reset, get a new password, right. send a link, like it's a lot of work. Yeah. So right now I'm thinking to do breathing room where I'm not trying to like be off completely mm -hmm. but I kind of wanted to make it like a one day a week oh check in post some stuff write some messages but I found myself yeah like just thumbing that's what I like to call uh, it yeah. just th a constant thumbing I know and I think the most disturbing thing is when you open it and you're like ah you close it and then <laughs> without even realizing you open you hit it again you just open close open it's disgusting it's just addictive. It makes me so sick. Yeah. It's just so, it's just too addictive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But what is your relationship with social media? I, I've been feeling better about it lately, I guess. I think when I first started modeling, I was like, I, oh, I'm supposed to do this thing. And you start like putting, I don't know, like rules or like, oh, I mean, also because a lot of agencies will be like, you have to post a selfie every day. Some like weird, freaky stuff. I mean, I, I stopped modeling. <laughs> I feel good about. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, I still hope to do it for good money, but now I'm not, like, they won't let me, like, 
sell jeans on like a website anymore. Shout out all the brands with money. Yeah, shout out to yeah, exactly. If you need a great If you need like a F list celebrity endorsement. <laughs> so you'll do endorsements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think you're F list. <laughs> you're being way too hard on yourself. I think you're like uh, someone. Uh, well. not, not F. I don't want to place you in a category, but you're not F list. Okay, you're I, way I mean, higher. It's fine. I don't. I want to stop talking about this. <laughs> you don't want to talk about the F list part. <laughs> no. Okay. Let's yeah. Pick. It's okay. Yeah. That is exactly. This is also. This is tied into the relationship with Instagram, where it's like it like quantifies. You know your existence and it's weird obviously everyone feels that way but I think I've gotten better about seeing it as work and knowing that I have to do certain things and still trying to have it my voice but I think that like having stories really like made it a different thing where you're like oh this isn't worth posting but it's worth you know it's I don't know I kind of liked it when it wasn't like that right when it just didn't matter when it was just posts yeah oh Um, you actually prefer it with posts Yeah, when it was just posts where it it felt like you didn't have to guess whether it was valuable or not. Like, I don't know. Oh, I wish it was all stories. You wish it was all? I wish there was no posts. Oh, interesting. Because I like the idea that no one knows how many likes or views it gets, and you can just You can see how many views you've gotten. No, but they can't. The watchers. On the stories. Oh, the watchers. The watchers (laughs) cannot see. So there's no quantitative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no proof. It's yes. just like yeah. garbage. It's right. all garbage yeah, at that yeah. point. And it is that's all what garbage. It, I know, and that's what it is, and that's what we all have to realize. And I have this really interesting thing that I've been thinking about, which is that like, yeah, I mean, success is now quantifiable to some people, right? right? Because of like how many followers you get or how many likes you get or how much engagement you get. But then I like the other day, I looked at Michelle Gondry's Instagram, and he has like 20,000 followers. Hmm. He makes short movies, uh-huh. like puts in work and like makes yeah. these cutouts and like animated films on his Instagram. Yeah. But he doesn't give a fuck yeah. how many followers he has. Yeah. He doesn't give a fuck how many likes he has. And this is like a legendary yeah. director. Yeah. And at that point, I was just like, you know what? And, and like, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's a lot of people, like even like Patti Smith, who is a little more prolific on Instagram and like posts often. But I don't think she gives a fuck mm-hmm. at all yeah. about how many likes she gets. And I don't think it even matters. So yeah. I think having that kind of attitude is what's going to break the cycle. But I guess it also is so dependent on the powers that be, yeah. which really care because I feel like they're easily tricked. I feel like yeah, like an agent or something like is so like, yeah, whatever. It's, it's I, all yeah, fake. It's, it's all really fake. Scary. So you, you mentioned that you have learned a lot in the past three years. Yes. And you attribute a lot of that learning to therapy. Yes. What is going on? (laughs) (laughs) What is going on with your brain? What is going on? What have you learned? Um, That sounds exciting. Yeah. Well, I was, I had so much, I mean, I, yeah, culturally, it's not something probably that you grew up with. I did not grow up with any focus on mental health at all. And I feel like, uh, I mean, I still, I still romanticize like hard work, I think. And I think that there's this weird Korean philosophy of like, it has to be hard and it has to suck for it to, and then you like, you know, then it's valuable what you get out of it. And like, 
I have a hard time with that where I'm like, wait, it's, I'm like suspicious if something is easy or feels like I didn't have to work that hard for it or if it wasn't like a major struggle. But I, I guess I just realized like, oh, I'm depressed. I'm fully depressed and anxious. I'm constantly, anytime I'm like running into a problem where I'm like, okay, well, what do I do with this? Then, I mean, the answer at the end would be like, oh, well, I might as well just kill myself then because I can't do this. You know, like I, it was always like the go-to and I, it was just, I was so self-defeating and I finally decided to go and then I started taking medication, which I never, I, it took me like a year to even accept that I was still doing it, you know, like having to talk about it and being like, well, do I really need, you know, but then I realized how, and I do see it as like, um, I don't know, it's like the cast that you get when you have a broken bone and then like talk therapy is like the physical therapy, you know, like you just, it, you need a little structure or like some baseline or stability to even have the talk therapy be effective if you're still spiraling in the same ways. I don't know. So it's, that was, it is still helping me greatly. And I do attribute all of the success that I've had in any area of my life and being able to make work again, you know, without just like being like, this is pointless. I'm again, I'd be like, this is pointless. I should just kill myself. Like, I mean, it's not funny. It really got to a really bad point. And I decided I had to take it seriously. So yeah, everyone, you know, I mean, I'm like the annoying friend that's like, but are you going to therapy? And it's, I can't believe. And then that I'm like, a lot of the therapy when I first started was like, I don't know, what am I white? What am I a white person now? going to therapy like that it's like crazy to right. be like this is privilege this is like 100 percent. this is luxurious this is indulgent when it's like that is the work it's the work and i think that you know it's like we're all so into like self-care and we're like rosé all day take a bath face mask like that's not necessarily self-love i mean i feel like that's what i've been trying to do is understand what's the difference between self-care and self-indulgence right and self-love isn't isn't just doing those things that's a band-aid you know and yeah you have a shitty day of course i also love a bath and a face mask but i think putting in the work is really important and to be good to everyone that you love and to the world you also just need to know how you're triggered and why you do the things you do and I don't know, just learning more about myself has been really, really profound. I think the world would be a much better place if every single person was in therapy. Yeah. Even if it's just every other week, which they don't recommend. Yeah. But every it's a lot other of week catch can... up if you only do. Oh, it. totally. Yeah. Totally. Then you're like, you're just like a friend that won't tell me anything about yourself. I think, <laughs> I think what's interesting about the self-indulgence thing is that it's honestly... And I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the earth is flat. Mm-hmm. Just kidding, everyone. Mm-hmm. The earth is not flat. I am a flat earther. Great start to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll Very move this polarizing. to the front. Mm. It's just consumerism disguised as self-indulgence. And I yeah. recently saw Diet Coke's new slogan, which is, because I can. <laughs> Which to me sounds like somebody in the marketing department was like, people are not drinking soda because it's bad for you. And they were like, well, what if we made it about 
self care and self indulgence yeah. and, and like taking care of yourself. What if it's like, oh, like I drink Diet Coke because like, I why can. are you drinking that? It's because like, I because can. I can. Yeah, it's and I think that that's this big problem is that like the solutions are being sold to us yeah. as solutions, but they're not. They're like band-aids. It's like, yeah, the bath will help you feel better that night, but it's not going to like do any work. It's not going to like fix you. Like the only way you can fix is to really focus, right? Yeah. And like to like get to the root of the problem. Yeah. And I think a lot of what's happening right now is, is yeah, the face mask, the rosé and the bath is like it feels good, but it's almost like snorting a line of coke. Exactly. Like it lasts for that half hour yeah. and then you're back to being depressed and yeah. sad and Drinking anxious a and miserable. Of wine every night because you're like, I had a hard day. And you're so sophisticated that you get right. to deserve a bottle of wine every yeah. night. It's just it's honestly we've kind of lost our way when it comes to really understanding what can fix us and it's not buying more shit. Yeah. And I think everyone is, I think especially our generation and honestly, I used to feel this way about going back to like going to therapy, it feels so self-indulgent, right? And like I would, I've also been in therapy for a long time and would be like, every time I left, I'd be like, God, I can't believe I spent X amount of dollars on this. Like to just talk to someone, like am I really that big of a loser? Like can I just talk to myself? Can I talk to a friend? Like, and then I would do the math and be like, okay, so each month I spend, let's just call it $400 and be like, wow, $400 a month could like help XYZ other person or this person or that person. And it got to the point where I was honestly going to quit because like, I'm like, who do I think I am? Like, why do I deserve this? Like my my dad never had therapy. My mom never had therapy. Major guilt. Yeah, major guilt. And I stuck through it and I kept going and honestly feel about a hundred times better than I did five years ago. Yeah. So I think that there's something effective about it. I think, (laughs) I think people who don't go will have a lot to learn Mm -hmm. and I'm totally off track now. No, I, it's really important to me. (laughs) It's really, really important to me. Let's do it together. Yeah. Group therapy. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't, I can't like praise it more. Even it's usually the days that I go in where I'm like, Ah, oh, god damn it, I'm here again <laughs> and I'm out of stuff to talk about. This is just ridiculous. And then I'm just annoyed that I'm even there. And then I always have the best session when I'm like that, where I'm just like, this is so fucking stupid. And then that, I don't know, sparks something and... And then you have a breakthrough. Yeah. And then you end up on Netflix. <laughs> Like literally that's it. You go to art school, you get depressed. That's all you have to do. And then you have, well, you have to do the work. Yeah. And then you show up on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Netflix. Yeah. If we can, if we're allowed. Yeah. So you're a star. Wow. You're an actress. Mm -hmm. You play Margot Park Mm -hmm. in a show called Tales of the City. Yes. Tell me about the role. Tell me about the experience. It sounds like the coolest fucking thing ever. It was the coolest fucking thing ever. That was my first big acting job. So I was, yeah, the backstory to how I even got it. Modeling, the cooler it is, the less it pays. Start doing commercials, (laughs) then move 
So you were theatrical. like, you were like, I want to do GMC. I was like, I want that target money. Yeah. So started doing commercials, then moved laterally within my agency into the theatrical department, started going out for auditions here and there. But I honestly, I think it was around that time too, that I was trying to focus on my work and be like, okay, I'm, I'm an artist. I don't know why I keep trying to, you know, sabotage myself and tell myself that I don't need to do this and that it's the most frivolous thing on earth. Like it doesn't matter. I have to do it. Started doing it. Got an artist residency, like the first ever residency I'd been to. And I was there and then I got an audition where they were like, will you self-tape this? So within the first week, I just met these people and I was like, hey, this is the other part of my life. Do you mind feeding me lines while I record myself on my iPad? (laughs) So did it and then went back a couple days earlier for my residency to go to the callback. And it was just so crazy because I spent all month just painting and barely talking to anyone. And then I was like in front of Laura Linney and Alan Poole and Lauren Morelli, the showrunner. And I was like, this is insane. And I really, truly do believe that if you're doing the right thing, the universe will grant you the other good things. Like if you, I mean, it really, and even if it means that because I'm making work, I'm less anxious and therefore do better in my auditions because I'm not, thirst is a disease. They can smell it on you when you want it so bad. And so if you're doing other things that you care about, I don't know, it just, yeah, it all sort of like falls into place. So got the show, started shooting in July of last year, wrapped in November, end of November. It was supposed to be based in San Francisco, or it is based in San Francisco, set in San Francisco, but they built the entire house inside of Silver Cup in the Bronx. So I had like... Margot and Jake, who is played by Garcia. We had our own apartment. <laughs> it's really cute. It's like, oh, I have another apartment in New York. Oh, in the Bronx. Yeah, but in the house, in the fake house. Oh. In the, you know, like, that was like our apartment. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, but the show is Tales of the City. It's based on a series of books by Armistead Maupin. And it used to be a column, a daily column in the Chronicle. And then it was serialized, turned into books. First series, first miniseries with Laura Linney and Olympia Dukakis and Paul Gross and Barbara Garrick. Those are the original characters that came back for the revival. Olympia Dukakis is like the, it plays Anna Madrigal, who is the landlord matriarch of this queer chosen family. And it's about these people's lives, how they love and live. And so that was in 1993 and it was on PBS and then everyone flipped out because it was the first time that two men had been seen on television together in bed, implying sex or kissing and, you know, like everyone's heads exploded. Wow. And then they dropped it. And in, I think, 99 or, yeah, 99 and 2001, I think seasons two and three were on Showtime. And so 2019 released new you know, iteration of it. And we're just the new generation of people living in this house. And so it picks up where it left off or is it a total, is it like a remake? No, it's, it does pick up the timeline. If you actually did the math makes no sense at all, obviously, but it's, it's present day and it's Laura Linney coming back to San Francisco because she is sort of like the main character that the story revolves around. And so she comes back and it's like her midlife crisis and she's coming back to San Francisco where she used to live and then it's like this new 
new world that she's again, once again, exposed as a new San Francisco. Yeah. It sounds like a total blast. Very, yeah. It was amazing. How do you feel about wrapping this up? Good. Do you want to keep talking? I mean, I could talk forever. I could do this for a couple more months. Why don't we just get someone to come in now and then I'll just start being a host also. We can just keep it. I'll call someone. Co-host? Yeah. What up? (laughs) Should we shout out some more people? (laughs) What do you mean? I don't know. Just like shout out to like Mike and Jimmy, my neighbors when I was growing up. Oh. And Molly, don't want to leave her out. They're siblings. Cool. Shout out them. Wow. They have I, bowl cuts. I feel like I just forgot like everyone's name. Now that we're, I'm like, you know, on the spot about like who is important to shout out. Good morning, <laughs> New York City. <laughs> All right, we're done.